Hello and welcome to another episode of the CG Garage. This is episode number 454, uh, featuring Joe Letary, Senior Visual Effects Supervisor over at WetaFX. Now, I have had many legends on this podcast over the years, people like Doug Trumbull or Richard Endland, but I am super excited to include Joe. He is truly an incredible person. Uh, amazing stuff that he's done. He has been nominated for 11 Oscars, and he has won five of those, uh, including the Avatars, uh, two of the Lord of the Rings, and King Kong. Uh, I just, incredible person to talk to. Uh, can't even tell you about it. He has the greatest perspective on the industry from the widest point of view down to the minute, most uh, important part of technology, including uh, we talk about everything here, about AI and how it's going to affect the industry, to ray tracing, to virtual production and the future of in-camera in compositing, all so much details going in. Now, I did have a limited time with him. This was recorded over at the VIEW conference, and I only had about 20, 30 minutes with him. And so I wanted to make sure we got a lot of information. Luckily, we did. And so while this is a very short podcast, we go over a lot of information. So hang on tight and listen carefully because Joe is delivering on a lot of really important things in terms of where the industry is and where it's going. So really excited to have him on. And I'm super happy that we had that opportunity. Okay, in terms of announcements, I uh, got a couple things. Uh, just go to chaos.com for all of our product announcements. The big thing we have right now is V-Ray 6 Update 2 is out. If you'd like to know more about that, you can just go again to chaos.com. Uh, some of the new things included is a cross-platform integration with Enscape that we've been uh, developing, which is really, really cool. Uh, we also have Material X integration. Yes, this is Material X, and we have enhanced USD support along with many, many more advancements that are going on. Uh, these are this is part of uh, V-Ray 6 update 2 for 3ds Max. All the other platforms will be following shortly. But again, go check it out at chaos.com. In terms of events, uh, just go to chaos.com slash events. Uh, this, uh, this month, we do have some inter an interesting thing. We have a webinar going on right now with our good friend Nikos Nikolopoulos, uh, and he's doing an ArcVis Masterclass uh, with Creative Lighting, and this is going to be going on December 6th through the 25th, uh, but there's going to be eight uh, episodes in a series that he's going to be doing uh, starting from December 7th all the way to uh, September 26th, 2024. So lots of good stuff going on again go to chaos.com slash events to reserve your seat uh in this webinar and uh see the other ones happening next year uh okay now if you guys want to know more about the podcast uh of course you guys can go to our podcast page it's just go to chaos.com slash cg garage if you'd like to follow us on facebook we are at facebook.com slash cg garage podcast if you'd like to watch this podcast all of our videos at Chaos are posted on youtube.com slash chaosgrouptv, including this particular podcast. And you can check out all the other podcasts there. Uh, and if you have any comments about this podcast or you'd like to make suggestions of other ones, we've been getting really great suggestions uh, over the last several months. Just go to labs at chaos.com. Again, that is labs at chaos.com. But for now, please enjoy episode number 454 with Joe Letary. Welcome to another CG Garage, where the chaos group talks. You'll know it's over when the last bucket drops. We're gonna fire off rays in high dynamic range. We know that ambient occlusion is passe. Global illumination won't lead you astray. And while image-based lighting 
is really swell. You need to make sure everything has for now. Thanks, Joe. Congratulations on the amazing work that you've done. Congratulations you, Chris. on your yep. latest Oscar as well. Thank you. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, before we get started, I just have a couple of questions. What was your inspiration for, to, for getting into doing the things you do? Um, it was sort of this mix of science and math and art. Like I was studying you know, physics and math and I started seeing computers being used to make visualizations essentially. Right. And I thought that was, you know, pretty interesting. And then, you know, I started getting in, uh, into fractals. Like there was a, a um, that was all sort of coming out in, in, in those days. And you know, really the only way to make those was having a, your hands on a computer. So I talked my way into letting, you know, somebody who had a computer let me use it. And cause they weren't that common in those days and just kind of learning you know, as I went and just enjoying it and getting more and more, you know, interested in it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so those sort of early, like the 1980s or early 80s? Uh, yeah, late 80s. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And how did you end up at Weta? Uh, I ended up at Weta because Peter was doing Lord of the Rings. Right. Um, I was at ILM at the time, very interested in doing character work. And I had worked on a film called Magnolia. Oh, right. Um, and, um, uh, Lauren Ritchie, who was the uh, um, vice president of visual effects at the time at New Line, um, was also New Line was handling Lord of the Rings, mm -hmm. and so she got me in touch with the people at um, um, you know at, at Weta, sure. um, and I was just totally interested because Gollum was just one of my favorite characters, you know, sure. from from the books, and I thought what a great chance that would be to to work on that. So. Um, yeah, I thought it was going to be just a two-year project going and work on, you know, Two Towers and Return of the King and then head back home and that never happened. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was really interesting. Mm -hmm. But I, one of the questions that, uh, that actually Vlado had was, what do you prefer? Do you prefer CG or miniatures? CG, I've never done miniatures. You've never done miniatures? No, I've, I've only done it's CG. Always like been interested in CG. Yeah, yeah. I, like I said, that's because I came out of doing, you know, engineering, computer science, math, physics. I've never done miniatures. Well, we've used them on Lord of the Rings, right. but I've never built them. You weren't myself. part of that process. Uh, I was part of the, uh, well, in a way, like planning the shots. Sure. Because as a supervisor, yeah, you plan the shots, you work all that stuff out. Right. But I've never built miniatures myself. Right, yeah. right, right. Yeah. Uh, what, I mean, if I look at stuff like Avatar, first Avatar and definitely the second Avatar, the amount of insane amount of technology that's mm. being developed to make that happen is just kind of mind-blowing. Uh, it almost feels unattainable to most people to think about how much technology can be developed for that film. How do you think that, you know, there's an idea of trickle-down technology, but sometimes even trickle-up technology. How do you mm. feel that that technology that you guys have developed is going to permeate through the process, through the world of CG. Well, I think like anything else, you you know, you test these things, you try them, and when you see they're successful, people will look at um, if there's a place for them in their next production, if it makes sense for them to to try it or not, and they they may or may not. I mean, we built a really you know sophisticated simulation engine for doing these big water scenes. Right. If you don't have big water scenes with characters coming out of the water with, you know, like I said, water dripping off of their eyelashes and into the ocean, right. you may not need that. You right. know, there's things to be learned there even if you don't need that, but you may just not need anything that, that big. So, you know, people always look at their own projects and try to figure out what they can take from it and what's useful. 
Right. Mm -hmm. But it, in that production, you know, you were not just involved in the CG, but a lot of the physical stuff that was involved in creating that, like the motion captures and the all oh, yeah, those yeah. things. Well, you, you have to be. I mean, visual effects these days, it, we're long past the point where it's a post-production process. We're, we're involved very early on to help plan it all out. Right. Yeah. What about virtual production, the idea of virtual production right now? I mean, obviously, you guys revolutionized the idea of virtual production on Avatar when it mm -hmm. was starting, and, and we're thinking about virtual cameras. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts about virtual cameras and their evolution as we go? Well, again, the way we would use them on Avatar or Hobbit or most of the films that we've done them with, they've been as a director's tool for um, visualizing what's not on set. Now, these days, I think the term has come to mean anything that's got a, an LED screen behind it. That's a different kind. <laughs> yeah, but that's, uh, I haven't really had the chance to work that way because it hasn't fit the films that we've been sure. doing. Like, it, it didn't really fit Avatar. Avatar was more about, you know, can we see this other world out there that we're going to put in? Because right. um, we just knew we wouldn't ever get there with a screen. You know, plus the sets were too big. There, there was no room for screens. Right. Yeah. But, but the virtual camera has become such an important part of the process. Sure. Right? Yeah. And uh, I think between what you guys are doing and Jim's vision, mm -hmm. the idea of having a marriage or, or even like a you know, digital twin mm -hmm. of your physical camera. How, what are your yeah. thoughts on how you create those, those twins? Well, for us, the big breakthrough was uh, doing the uh, real-time depth compositing yes. that I was talking about earlier. Because that, you know, that, all, that took away the final barrier. You know, anytime you had a camera with a, you know, with a digital character in it and, you know, you have something in the foreground and the character in the background and the character slapped over the thing in the foreground. Mm -hmm. It immediately breaks your sense that I'm seeing the real thing. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you can have real-time depth compositing, that changes it. That makes it, you know, really give you the impression that you're looking at the proper world. You can, you can dolly past something. You can, you know, you can do things with depth that you would do with live action without having to think about it. So to me, that was um, a much more important breakthrough than having, you know, things behind. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Now, Jim is obviously very sophisticated when it comes to CG. He can understand what he's looking at. He can see where it's going to go. Mm -hmm. uh, but real time right now, we're seeing advances in real time that are starting sure. to make that, that difference between what's going to be final and what's on the virtual screen much closer. Sure. Mm -hmm. uh, what are your thoughts about how that's going to affect uh, directors beyond Jim Cameron would well, be able to see that. In sure. Ways. I mean, again, it depends on the project. Like, can you get it close enough that it's usable? Right. Because if you can't, in some ways, it becomes a distraction or misleading. Okay. Where you think you're seeing something or the director thinks they're seeing something that's going to be on the screen, but in reality is not going to be. You right. Know? Um, so it, it really just depends. Like, you know, for example, um, if you can't ray trace everything in real time and you have to revert back to using shadow maps, but your shadow maps have the wrong resolution or you've got a big detailed scene and you start turning some of them off, you get a false sense of the lighting. Right. So you can't believe that. So you have to know that, that what you're seeing is a guide, it's not the real thing. Sure. And um, you, you know, that you, when you're working with a director, it's making sure that 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 line, you know where that line is. Right. It's going to change if you're, you know, if we're looking for realism later. But if you can get the realism now, yeah, why not? I mean, I guess the only key there is you need to know what what you're doing far enough ahead that you're doing all the effects work before the shoot. 
right. which, which is also unique. You know, you're building the assets and you're texturing them and you're getting all that approved right. in time for the live action. Right, fix it in pre as opposed to fixing it. In exactly right. right. Exactly right. Yeah. And yeah. you mentioned ray tracing. Do you think ray tracing is going to be the thing that unlocks some of that stuff in terms of real time? Well, between ray tracing and path tracing, which I know are similar but different, yeah. path tracing is is really the only technique that you know, at least from a mathematical perspective, sure. solves the problem. Right? right. So, so yeah, if you can't path trace, there, you're 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 biasing your solution somewhere. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I, that's technology that we're, we're working on at Chaos to sort mm -hmm. of do path tracing in real time for virtual production. Yeah. Sort of yeah. considering those things. Yeah. Uh, I, I think it's fascinating. Uh, someone else brought up a question that I thought was very interesting. And they're wondering, you know, as someone in the academy who's seen it specifically how uh, visual effects are being uh, uh, looked at in the academy, uh, what are your thoughts about how AI is going to influence when if someone creates something using a lot of AI, mm -hmm. how will that influence their ability to be considered for an Oscar or things of that nature? Do you think there's going to be a certain bias towards work that is not AI based? Uh, you mean like within the visual effects range? Sure. That I don't really know. You know, yeah. and again, it depends what you mean by by AI, like like I said, we we used AI or more properly a neural network, you right. know, for our facial animation system. Right. Yeah, um, and that seemed to be very well received. But sure. Again, we're we're using it as a tool, like a super brush, in in, in essence, for the artist, not yep. to, you know, not to replace what the artists are doing. Right. But I can't say how people are going to, um, you know, feel about that because remember a couple of years ago there was the film. What was it called? Welcome to Chechnya, that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where, you know... That was fabulous. Exactly, and everyone was really interested. And that was using, you know, basically almost off-the-shelf AI. Right. But the fact that it was used in that situation, you know, to help hide those identities as part of the documentary. Right. Everyone thought, well, that's actually fantastic. Right, you know? so, right. Yeah. I've actually interviewed Ryan on this podcast as oh, well okay. about it, so it was really... Yeah. Really kind of yeah, cool. Yeah. And I think you're right. I think there's definitely tools like, for example, very advanced denoisers that mm -hmm. can basically, that are an AI tool that can do it. They are. And that's like, that's so bread and butter that no one's going to consider if you're using that or not. Right. Like I was making the point earlier, you kind of have to. Right. Like, you know, a path tracer is great, but path tracers really can't solve the noise problem in any practical sense. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> well, with AI, they can. But that's... Right. That's an AI as a denoiser, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Because you're applying it at the end of the chain. Yeah, 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 exactly. It's difficult to put that within the path tracer. Um, yes. There, there are places where it does work, and, you, and yes, you can use it. But, you know, path tracer is a pretty complicated beast. It sure. The, the same engine doesn't work everywhere. I find it, I mean, I found it because recently we've added uh, the new ray reconstruction stuff that uh, NVIDIA is doing to our Vantage render. Yes. Uh -huh. And we're able to get some extraordinarily clean renders with one sample per pixel. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of amazing. Really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, in terms of the AI stuff, I just want to hit on it a little bit more, if that's okay. Method, for example, recently had that revealed that they had been using some generative AI uh -huh. stuff for what they've done. Now, of course, lots of artists were involved. It was a very creative process, but yeah. just that concept, there was a backlash in the community about that. What are your thoughts about that? You know, again, to me, it's a tool. If it makes sense to use it, use it. Right. I think um, the more important thing to be aware of, and this may be... Um, you know, part of like what's going on with the writers and, and the actors is um, 
you should only be using things that you have a right to use. You sure. know what I mean? So, but if you're, if you're using it in that fashion, if you're essentially not stealing someone's performance and right. using AI to essentially take credit for it as a shortcut, you know, then yeah, you've done the work. Right. So, you know, whatever tool you use, AI is really just another engine. Yeah, 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 for sure. What are some of the things that are, it's obviously you've created so many things that inspire other people in visual effects. What are some of the things that are created that inspire you, or especially more recently? Um, hmm. Good question. Because I, I tend to still look more towards live action films. Right. You know, because that's where, you, again, you want that reality component you know, to come off of it. Sure. You don't, you don't want to, you know, keep feeding, um, like you don't want to be in a feedback loop of just visual effects. You want to keep going back to live action as you're grounding. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I, what are some of the live action things that you think are exciting you right now? Uh, well, God, I'm trying to think, but because again, it, it will just come down to particular performances. You know what actors are doing, looking for moments in it. Right. Um, I'm trying to think of anything off the top of my head, but nothing, nothing really new. You know what I mean? Like I'll, sure. I'll tend to go back and, and look at old stuff, like um, you know, looking at Burt Lancaster in uh, right. in, in um, um, The sure. Leopard. You, you oh know, wow, that, that okay. kind of stuff yeah. where. You know, it's a whole different world and a whole different feel. And how did they bring it about? You know? Sure. Because you've got, you know, actors in period, costume out on location. That They must have had a certain feeling when they did that. Is there something we can learn from that to make sure that when we're doing something, which is a totally unique location, there, there's something there. Sometimes there is, sometimes there isn't. Right. But I tend to look for those kinds of things. Yeah. I think what's interesting about uh, 2023 is that it seems to be a bit of a shift in terms of the conversation about CG that I think is fascinating. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's three, three films that have come out this year that sort of create this very interesting uh, uh, dichotomy. If you look at Avatar, you know, obviously a film that costs a lot of money with incredibly complicated CG, yet that was not almost part of the conversation. People loved the movie for everything mm -hmm. that it was, which means you guys achieved what you're supposed to with CG. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. And then you compare that with everything everywhere all at once that uses all kinds of very interesting and weird CG that's done on a shoestring budget. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Which again, served the story very well. It did, did serve know, the story. It was almost that sort of comic book anything goes feeling. It was great. Right. Yeah, yeah. And then you do Oppenheimer, which is an incredibly rich film that celebrates its use of practical stuff. Mm -hmm. How do you feel that those three films as sort of these very different points of view of what filmmaking is, how do you feel they all can live in the same world? Um, they all used, for, for the things you're talking about, heavy amounts of CG. My understanding, even Oppenheimer did. Yes. Like they shot a lot of elements, but I would... I would guess the compositors would tell you they weren't sitting around on their hands no, with sure. all those elements. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, what, but what do you think about like the fact that you know someone can be in their basement doing some computer graphics and creating a great film, and mm -hmm. then at the same time that that's you know diametrically opposed to the massive amounts of work that you guys are doing in, in Avatar? A lot of that depends on the scope of the film. It's uh, like, look, if you can sit there and do it all yourself, that's great. Like I remember that from the old days. That's mm -hmm. really a lot of fun to do. But the bigger the production gets, the more you really do need that, that specialization because you're just getting into it so deeply. Right. You know, like you can't expect someone who understands 
you know, how to do a simulation on an open ocean with a lot of characters in it to also be the one, you know, animating a character's tail. Like you just, there's too much work to be done. So that specialization almost comes naturally the bigger the, bigger the film is. Sure, yeah. sure. Obviously, as a VFX supervisor, you think of many different specialties. You're not a specialist mm -hmm. in one particular thing. Uh, well, one of the questions we got was, um, uh, how, what do you do? Do you have any kind of rituals to prepare you for something? Let's like you've got a massive day where you've got a mm -hmm. bunch of bunch of things happening. How mm -hmm. do you prep for that day and feel ready to go? Uh, I don't really prep for the day. We just like we start off with uh, dailies. Like that's been a a way of working. Like ever since film days, right? right. You start off in the morning, looking at what you got from the night before, and just starting starting to figure out where you need to go next. Yeah. Yeah. What was some of the things that you guys uh, invented besides the fluid sim that you guys sort of invented that it sort of inspired you? For guys? this film? Yeah. Um, yeah, the, the <clears throat> excuse me, the fluid sim, you know, Loki, which was used for fire and water. Yeah. Uh, the facial animation system I've talked about, mm -hmm. the depth compositing. Those were all really key, you know, key elements for us. Um, Do you see those things evolving even more into new things? Oh, sure. Yeah. 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 You can always make something better, especially yeah. after you've you know done it for the first time. Do yeah. you see the depth compositing as evolving into almost going into complete real-time final frame? Well, real-time, again, means can your, is your compositor taking advantage, your compositor meaning your compositing software, right. is that taking advantage of the GPU? Right. Um, and if it is, yeah, then that's a possibility. If not, it will be an offline process. Right. But it will be the same technique. Yeah. Same technique. That idea of having per-pixel depth you know, like I said, on the first avatar, we started doing that for everything. The renderer spits out per pixel depth, you right. know, so trying to extract that out of the real world makes sense because that's the best way to put the two together. Right. Yeah. So it's only like a deep compositing, basically. So it, it's totally deep compositing. Right, right, right. It's, it's just a bit, um, like deep compositing when you're generating the elements is much easier than when you're trying to learn the depth from something that's been shot physically. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. Okay, I've got another couple of strange questions. Someone asked me if you can uh, think about some of your, your first work, and one of them is the opening shot of Star Trek Four, Star Trek VI. Six. Yes. Six, sorry. Mm -hmm. That was the first shot I ever did for a movie. Yeah? yeah? But blowing up Praxis, that was great. Yeah. <laughs> so tell, tell, can you tell us a little bit about that process? So um, that was, I had been interested, I was only at ILM for a short time, and I'd been interested in, in doing fractals, you know. Mm -hmm. making clouds and things like that. Was, I was sort of just doing, you know, in off hours on, on my own time because obviously we had the gear there to do it. Right. Uh, Scott Farrar had just shot Backdraft and he was the supervisor on Star Trek VI. And Backdraft did this technique they called brain flame where, you know, to get the, the sense of the fire creeping along the floor, um, what he did was had a, a fire uh, against a, like sort of a, you have a fire source here mm -hmm. against a pan. You angle the pan up, you control the speed of the, the flow, right? And you flip it upside down and comp it on the floor, and you see fire creeping along the floor. Right. So he wanted to use a technique like that to get the explosion, but it just wasn't practical at that size. You just couldn't really control <coughs> it. Um, so they came to me and said, "Can you do something with it?" And I had really to do fractals. I discovered RenderMan with programmable shaders. And mm -hmm. It's like okay, so so it was a combination of um, really hand animated geometry to hang all this stuff on, and then writing what was meant to look like a flame fluid sim effect, but just doing it all in shaders, just, just, shaders. just writing shader code. 
Yeah. Was that was that kind of an exciting thing for you to do? It was great. It was really great because you know the, the thing about writing code like that in a shader is like you have access to every pixel. You can make the screen do what you want it to do. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, there's a guy named uh, uh, Alexa who's uh, who used to work over at uh, uh, Weta, and uh -huh. he's asked me about. He said you have a passion for astrophotography. Is that true? That's true. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so, so how did you get into that? Well, it's the other way around. When I was a kid, I was studying physics and astrophysics, and oh, I was right. going. I thought I was going to go into astronomy, right? Uh, but then I got sidetracked in in. Uh, in the last few years, as, as I've started to free up a little bit more of my time overnight, right. um, I've just been, you know, been going doing back that. into that. Yeah, going back into it. Yeah. <clears throat> so, yeah. what are one of the latest things that you've been photographing? Uh, I'm trying to think what the last thing I photographed was. Ooh, I can't remember in, in order what it was, but what's great about being in New Zealand is there's, there's southern hemisphere objects. Completely that, different yeah, sky. That are, yeah, that you get to see. Yeah. Yeah. And do you, use a, do you use a telescope or do you, yeah. Yeah, you use a telescope? And yeah, you, it's all deep sky. It's all deep sky. Okay. Yeah. yeah. yeah that's great. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Well, listen, I know your time is limited. I mm -hmm. think we're at about a half an hour, right? So uh, this has been amazing. I appreciate it. I know you've got a flight today. So uh, we'll I'm not a flight today. I'll be around later, but I've got some place I've got to get to. Okay. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for doing this. All right. Thank you, Chris.